and everyone has that, men, women, everyone. Everyone has obstacles in their life where they feel like they have to make a decision that wasn't necessarily part of their plan. Um, And I think women especially have to make those kinds of hard decisions. Where the booze is for baking and the asses for shaking. Welcome back to an in-studio version. Our first in-studio visit in around 16 months. I didn't do the math beforehand, Kenneth. I see you crunching numbers over there. My name's Mike Wolf, and along with me today is my co-host. Me, Kenneth. Kenneth Dedman. (laughs) Rusty, man. This will take a minute. Yeah, great to be back here at We Own This Town Studios. Shout out to our producer, Michael Eads, and everybody at We Own This Town. Check it out at weownthistown.net. The music show, always a favorite, and they have a new podcast called Mom Cult. Mom Cult is real talk. Real moms, real tired. So uh, check that out. Today we have a very special guest. As we have started season four, check out our first episode of season four with Miss Alice Randall, which is an amazing talk. One of my most favorite interviews I've ever had the pleasure to do. So please check out uh, episode one of season four. We're doing books and booze. And today we've got just a rock star, author, pastry chef, mother hero to many lisa donovan is in studio miss lisa <laughs> wow, donovan what an introduction michael <laughs> thank you it's gonna say like the liberace of buttermilk pie <laughs> but that doesn't work uh, uh i'll take it though the beyonce of buttermilk pie <laughs> that's yeah. a stretch but i'll take it as well <laughs> <laughs> i love it thanks so much for being here today the paperback version of lisa's debut novel and memoir our lady of perpetual hunger the, per- the paperback is out. Um, so tell me a little bit, like, what, what is that like going from the beautiful hard hardback cover that I have here that you, you will mm-hmm. have to sign later? What is that like as you move into, the, like, the paperback world? You had mentioned, I would heard on another interview where you mentioned, like, that it was, th- like, a permanent sort of thing. It's It, it gives it kind of permanence mm-hmm. where it's like, this is how it's going to live. It's going to get out there. It's going to get yeah. in people's book bags and mm-hmm. get on the beach with people, things like that. How does that make you feel it as an author? Good. Yeah. Like it feels like, uh, you know, it's de- it's the final iteration of your book. It's the final state it will ever be in. And I don't know about you guys, but like I love a paperback. Like it's it's always like something that feels more accessible and it feels like you're actually, I don't know, there's something a little more hospitable about the tactility of it. And mm-hmm. there's like, you can fall asleep with it. You can throw it in your book bag. It's, it's something you can carry with you. And I think it becomes even like more accessible financially for people. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, those are the books you read in high school are always these like soft bound paperbacks. And you just kind of hope that they will find their way around the world. And it feels more natural for this book for me. And I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know I was going to get into paperback and feel like that was the state of its existence that was going to feel like the most rewarding. But it mm-hmm. really, really is. And also... You know, honestly, like last year was terrible <laughs> and yeah. coming out with a book last year was incredibly hard and difficult in, in addition to all the other things that were hard and difficult. And, um, you know, it didn't take quite the priority as a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um so you kind of just moved through it and did your best. And the paperback has also been like a really good opportunity to re-engage with the the material and the audience and you know things are 
you know, as far as COVID goes, you know, not necessarily better, but we're moving around. We have vaccinations. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of other things I could say that aren't positive, but we'll stay in the positive space for a minute. Sure, we're back in studio, which <laughs> yeah. is crazy. We're back in a studio. And amazing to be here I'm with you. I'm sitting across very from people and looking at you as I'm speaking, and yeah. like we're drinking coffee together. So like, you know, we're 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 making some advances, and it's really nice to be able to do that with this version of the book. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's 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 nice. It feels nice. It's a really good feeling. And uh, you know, I'm leaving t- uh, on Wednesday for kind of like a belated book tour, and it will all be paperback. Which you know, and on uh, a lot of the events that we're planning are to support. Uh, survivors of domestic violence and a lot of women's clinics and a lot of things that are very specific to women's health and Mm -hmm. so those you know there's an opportunity there to like throw a bunch of paperbacks into a women's center and like let them kind of move around in a really grassroots kind of way so that's exciting too I feel like this book is finding its its uh its community and I think it's going to be because it made it to paperback, I mm-hmm. think, by and large. So Yeah, it seemed like you really found um, this cool, diverse audience when the book was first coming out. I remember you would be posting reactions from people. Mm-hmm. And they were from all over. All over, yeah. Um, so while, and I want to talk a little bit about how you write a book with some like kind of Nashville insider stuff. Mm-hmm. And you talk about difficult relationships that you went through, mm-hmm. chefs that you worked with. Then you have to go to the grocery store. Then you have to go to a movie. Right. And then you go to um, mm-hmm. the the you know the cantina down the street where you mm-hmm. just see your neighbors and see sure. your community a little bit. And so you're running into this these people and you're having some of those in talking to you a few months back. You know, having you know kind of awkward situations. Or sure. but tell me about that versus it had to balance itself out really well mm-hmm. with the feedback that's coming out mm-hmm. to you from all over the world. Mm-hmm. That is people saying, oh, my God, right. I have been waiting for someone to write this for, for so long. Right. You know, that, that's what I feel like. So talk about that kind of juxtaposition. I think that's interesting. It is interesting. And it's not altogether easy <laughs> to navigate. Um, and it's easier for me to kind of put some language around it now than a year ago. Um, but, you know, I think I had to sort of stay committed to what I know my intentions were, even though people, I think, will oftentimes try to assign you other intentions to your um, behavior or your just your decisions or your choices. Um, and I think you just, when you're making big decisions like this in the public eye, it feels important to, I don't know, to kind of stay squared away with what you know you meant and mm. accept that maybe you made some mistakes along the way and... Uh, really stay in the space of what you were intending. And I never intended to actually suppose anything about anyone else. And I, and I worked really hard to just communicate what I felt I had to navigate um, and never really assigning any intent or any malice or any, you know, nefarious, you know, behavior towards me. I just really was trying to communicate something about my experiences that felt like I had to make decisions that I don't think I would have made if I hadn't obviously been presented with sort of these obstacles. Um, And everyone has that, men, women, everyone. Everyone has obstacles in their life where they feel like they have to make a decision that wasn't necessarily part of their plan. Um, And I think 
women especially have to make those kinds of hard decisions. We have to constantly be navigating spaces uh, where we're undervalued or seen in a certain light. And those realizations are difficult. And so I, I really, you know, it's interesting to me that there was a little bit of a pushback. And I think, you know, there have definitely been some <laughs> relationships that have ended over this book. But ultimately, I know what my intentions were. I wish I maybe would have communicated a little bit better on the back end, but it was such an immersive project for me that um, I was in such a zone of writing this book that I, you know, if, if I have one fault, it's that I didn't really consider communicating, I think, on the on the front end of this book with local people. Um, and that was, that's, a, that, that's like a, a hard lesson. It's a really hard lesson to learn the hard way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I know what my intention was. It was actually to bring some women into the public forum who I think don't often get to be as complicated and as complex as they are in real life and also still be seen as incredibly valuable mm. and to still be seen as really important um, because, you know, oftentimes women are seen as complicated and difficult and their value becomes less in a community because they're whatever, quote unquote, ball busters or, you know, mm. bitches or whatever, whatever the language is around yeah, oh, women. Oh, they're difficult. Yeah, they're difficult instead of yeah. empowered or strong or focused or dedicated. Mm -hmm. And and I was really, really trying to, and I, I, I honestly feel like I, 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 I mostly succeeded because I, I get a lot of feedback saying, you know, I really appreciate how you've put language around this. And I really appreciate how you've talked about this, these experiences. At the end of the day, I, I think a year, a year after this book has been published, I've made peace with the fact that uh, I think if you're going to put yourself in this sort of public arena, you're going to piss people off. And mm. if there's any amount of um, honest reflection, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's not always going to come back and be and be perfect for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I do think I worked really hard to establish my boundaries as far as what I was willing to do. I was never trying to, I was never trying to demean anyone in the public eye. So I, I really, really stuck wholly with what my experiences felt like without trying to sort of angle it in a victim lens or like anyone, you know, did me any harm with the exception of Obviously, you know, I, I, there's there are several pages about uh, domestic violence and in a really bad relationship. That obviously was something a lot more um, visceral than, mm -hmm. and it is so far in my past that it was actually really therapeutic on some level for me to just go ahead and lay out the 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 language and the honest, like the real raw honesty of that. Mm -hmm. um, and none of those people are in my life. And actually, frankly, I give a shit about what I need. If yeah. they pick up this book, I think it would actually, you know. I, I know it wouldn't affect their lives, but I don't care if it does or doesn't. Um, the part that was surprising to me was how much this rubbed uh, local people the wrong way. Mm. And uh, so, you know, it, balancing the the sort of local blowback of this with the national and and international sort of gratitude and, 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 and thanks for kind of cultivating these stories on page um has been interesting yeah you know um and you know honestly a lot of it i feel okay at this point 
moving past at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't get it right all the time, but you can always try to get it right the next time or closer to right the next time. And, and I'm, you know, now I'm thinking through and, and forget, you know, forget the, the local community. This was incredibly difficult for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, um, you know, when people in Nashville say the, the 10 to 12 people who seem to have a problem with this book in Nashville, they seem to feel like they are prioritized in my um, my misgivings about how I, I wrote this book. My mother was the main priority. You know, I spoke very carefully, but also very explicitly about the complications of being a woman my age with a mother her age. That's a very specific relationship that hasn't gotten a lot of space in the literary world Mm -hmm. yet. Um, And I think there was so much value. I've done so many podcasts and book clubs with uh, just women. And a lot of women either bring their mothers or their mothers bring their daughters. And they're all, you know, this sort of Gen X and and boomer mother. And it's this very complicated <laughs> relationship. Um, and so that becomes sort of my central focus. I actually, you know, the sort of piddly weird shit that I'm supposed to be concerned about in Nashville is distracting. Mm-hmm. But the real heart of like what is upsetting what could have been upsetting to me was the impact this had on my mother. And mm. but the beauty of it was we had this impactful six months after this book came out where there was some thrashing. There was some yep. deep, deep pain that got opened up, even though we thought we had talked about it, even though I called her researching this book, even though I included her in a lot of these sort of stories, there was some real um, deep things that we had to really, really get down to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can actually say our relationship now is so strong, like genuinely strong now. Um, and she knows something about me. And I know something about her that we just didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think we were we were both sort of posturing our whole lives, trying to not get in each other's way. And we this kind of forced so many issues of um, we have to get in each other's way to actually be with each other and have these conversations that aren't easy. Yeah. And I think so. that's, that's like the power of writing, I think yeah. too, is yeah. you get right down to mm-hmm. it uh, in a way that is hard to articulate, hard to talk Correct. to people about. Well, I'm happy to hear you. the story of you and your mom continues past the book. Yeah. Um, I think probably the one thing that, that gripped me the most about your book at first my first reaction was oh my gosh you're like how wonderful how honest and and i was like uh kenneth you're uh, you're gonna suck at being a literary critic because because <laughs> honesty is like it, it it is a very large part of, of the story but how your honesty is so relatable mm. is is really what gripped me about your book first of all about haters um no matter what in the game uh there's always going to be haters and in the context of writing say the nashville uh, food scene from 2002 until present day Mm -hmm. if you if you hadn't written the book you still would have had haters Mm -hmm. and it probably would have possibly been the same ones that were pushing back on you about about the book anyway you just wouldn't have known in how deeply they they were right they were. <laughs> well there's a lot of truth to that they, there was a realization and that's really i think incredibly 
smart thing to acknowledge because somewhere along the lines I realized these people never respected me to begin with so you know why am I sitting here trying to uh, mine for it now after Mm -hmm. the fact so you know you're absolutely correct it's it's really smart observation I think when you set out to write the book it was a memoir to you and you were were you like I'm going, you know, as deep as my writing will take me. Did you ex- mm. did you ever turn around and be like, "Wow, I'm like getting it all out there"? Was that was that part of your goal? Like, I did you, you had did to you, bite your tongue a bit? Did yeah. you map things out? Did you outline? Okay, so, yeah. so it was kind of the other way then. Well, maybe. it was a it was a large sort of dump, right? Like mm-hmm. it was a large sort of like I got it all out and mm-hmm. then we reeled it in. And I said to my editors at some point, and they were good um, because there was on some level about some people who are, you know, not in my past and not my family that I spoke about where it was just so like such an acerbic like bitterness that I would speak to them about. Like I really wanted to fuck, you know, I really wanted to say what I really think of them. And then I realized, well, what is the value of that? And does it undermine the actual power of sort of the the heart of what you're saying the heart of what bit. i'm saying like yeah. does it, it, it i i started to feel like the things where i was obviously harboring some you know not altogether like emotionally mature feelings <laughs> towards some people i realized all that's doing is deflecting the the mission statement here which is to show a through line of the ways in which women have to navigate their lives in this world, which was really, it was, that was my first priority. And my second priority was then to show the ways in which women are tethered in a lot of these decisions and moves that they have to make. And even in distant relationships, and even in sort of random, you know, um, interactions that might not matter to one person, but matter greatly to another person, you know, I mean, uh, talking about these sort of clandestine moments I had with Alice Randall is a great example, you know, and they probably, uh, maybe in some ways, she didn't feel like there was a connection there, but they were really life changing for me. And Mm. I really think there's something very special to showing that connectivity especially amongst women because we we move in very quiet ways for each other Mm. Um, and I think there's something really powerful to that that kind of storytelling Um, so so yeah it it definitely there was uh, (laughs) there was a lot of editorial guidance there was a lot of me sort of deciding on the front end what my goals were and making sure that the only thing I wrote empowered those two kind of goals, mm-hmm. which was, you know, it was never going to be like, you know, an expose of anybody that was never. Yeah. And I don't think that's what it was, even no. though, uh, you know, some people behave as if it is, um, you know, there was a really dedicated uh, and conscientious effort to show only things from how I felt mm-hmm. and I think it was you know made pretty clear throughout the book that this was about one woman's way of navigating most of her adult life yeah now I should have mentioned this uh, in my epic intro because you deserve an epic intro you're a James Beard award-winning writer I didn't mention that <laughs> but you won for a, an essay you wrote mm-hmm. 
is that kind of were you always going to write a book was that sort of what led to the book and tell me about going from because i know you love essays and i know that's like part of your thing Mm -hmm. and there's definitely like kind of essays within this book a little bit i Mm -hmm. feel like like there was times where i was reading this book and i was like i want to stay right here yeah in this little world yeah where it was okay and then it was because i knew it was going somewhere else and i was like i want to you know it's like when you're watching a movie and you're like let's let's stay right here for a second (laughs) i was thinking of an exact part of the book that i uh oh yeah that i wanted to be in which was uh the 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 pizza place uh, ah trade winds yes yes uh um, and your boss, uh, Tom, do you feel yes? Um, <laughs> I'll say his name wherever I'm allowed to say okay, it. Yeah, I, I fell in love with him He's and the incredible. place all the way yeah. back to the office. He um, was an incredible human, uh, and I miss him nearly every day. What a guy! What a guy! That's Just, awesome. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad yeah, that I, you appreciated him. <laughs> no, thank you, Mike. But being, I, I, yeah, I, I totally no, agree I wanna, with you there. I want to talk a little bit later about. That sort of uh, golden age of, of Nashville coming of age, early mm. 2000s that, that you do talk about. But I guess what I was getting at was like, you know, you love essays. I know that we share a love of uh, Mary Frances, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, MFK Fisher and and her writing and like her essays. But was it was it ever daunting for you to, to get into this book as you were writing it and mm-hmm. you're going through it? Were you ever like, Jesus yeah, every like, fucking day. <laughs> it, it was hard. And, and tell me about your process, because I feel like you were writing at home, <clears> and <throat> then I do remember going way back, like, you would post on Instagram a little bit about you were writing something. I knew you were writing a book, but then I would, see, you know, I'd see you post, you're like in a hotel mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana, and you're mm-hmm. like, I'm hunkering down and I'm writing. So tell me about that process that mm-hmm. you went through of like, I need to go find somewhere to write. Because I have kids, you have kids, yeah. we both know, yeah. and we've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, but just tell me a little bit about that process and you finding that mm-hmm. time to get away and what that gave to you as a writer and how you were able to carve out that time. Well, going kind of back to the essay thing, um, the, I think the reason you feel like there are chunks of essays in this book is because there is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I can think of uh, three the Massa chapter. I mean, there's South several, of France a little yeah, bit. Or, Fran- yeah, yeah, there there are definitely things that were written independently of this book. Um, the Massa chapter is partially uh, an essay I wrote that is now taught as like papers in universities. I mean, wow. it was about being mixed race, having a mother, having a grandmother, losing those identities in the South, losing those identities in this country, purposefully the erasure of. Um, you know, uh, wanting to be less brown in this country to succeed, the realization that that, as much as I, uh, as much as that's heartbreaking, and there's a a, a real sense of loss to my person, the also the incredibly heartbreaking uh, realization that my grandmother and my mother and my great grandmother were right. And the less I looked like them, the the better in this Mm. country. And so those those conversations uh, get a little just, you know, distilled in essays, and they kind of get a little bit more stretched out in this book, Mm. um, to the point where I kind of wonder, you know, looking back, I've talked to some other women who are mixed race who are like, I didn't quite feel the power of that, it could have been stronger. And so now I feel like okay so next time 
I really want to make sure the impact of what the essay is stays uh, because there's so much room in a book and you 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 can sort of bring more to it, but also you can water it down. So yeah. so that as just like a, a writerly sort of thing I'm thinking about for the next time of really just making sure that the power lines stay through the each each essay if they get embedded into a larger volume of work, a, a larger body of work. I did write most of this from home. I have a very small house with a lot of animals and a lot of grown people in it. My children are adults. And uh, my son lives in New Orleans now, but uh, at the time he was in and out. Uh, My husband is uh, obviously a grown-ass man, and my daughter is now, you know, 17 years old. And so we have a very small, one of these old East Nashville houses that, you know, the walls are paper thin and and a dog and three cats and you know it's Mm -hmm. there's constant uh distraction Mm -hmm, (laughs) and mm -hmm. i'm the only person in the house who does not have her own space to go close the door on john has a studio out back you know maggie has a room joseph has a room and then i'm sort of left here with like you know no door to close there wasn't even a door on 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 our bedroom for the first year of me writing this book and that'd be a good title for the next book no door to close with lisa donovan yeah i was like (laughs) i don't care what the door looks like (laughs) put it up Put (laughs) put a door into this room i need to close it so it was it was difficult to find space and i can't i'm not a person that can write at a coffee shop or go to a place i just thank god fuck i can't i don't know how yeah libraries do it. is the only place i've been able to kind of i still get just, distracted because yeah. i love a library so much that i find myself not able to just focus cuz what i want to be doing is going into the archives and looking at old mm-hmm. magazines and i and i can't i i don't i didn't realize how easily distracted I was until I was trying to write this book. But um, uh, hotel rooms are great. Mm. Um, and uh, borrowing people's apartments when they go out of town. I was starting to oh, be yeah. this weirdo who noticed when my friends were vacationing. And I was like, can I house it for you? Can I just come? Do you have cats? I'll feed them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just need to be alone. And I, like, I can't. Something for me. Uh, and I and I have some other friends who are sculptors and, and not just writers, but I have some other friends who um, have children as well. The space for me isn't that hour. That space for me is like a week. I need to be in that space. So I need to start like chewing on something on a Monday and then write it on a Friday. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's a really ridiculous ask in all of our lives to like only have that week to think about how to cultivate these ideas on paper and Mm -hmm. a lot of writing as you know is not writing Mm -hmm. so a lot of that is really just and i do a lot of my pre-writing just in my head and and i'm thinking about i just wrote a foreword for um phyla haw's uh, for carter haw just wrote phyla haw's um biography and it's going to be a beautiful book i think it's coming out next year and i just wrote the foreword for it and I, it was I read his book and then I had to think about it for two weeks. I didn't take any notes on the book. I didn't I just thought and I thought about the impact of Phyla on our community and the impact. And then when I sat down to write it, it all came out. But then I needed like two more weeks to go back in and edit and mm-hmm. you know and then the, then and then you've, you're doing your copywriting process and that's where the real work is. But the actual writing always feels, like I just need some space. Mm-hmm. So I can copy at it at a coffee shop. I yep. can copy at it at home with the dogs barking at the mailman. Like I can do all of that. It's that process before I actually get the stuff out on page that is 
needs time and space and quiet and solitude. And solitude has become really important to me, which as a cook was never like the thing. Like you were never alone. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden now I have, I have these really highfalutin expectations of like being left to my writerly space. And it's kind oh, yeah. of, you know, part of me feels like it's ridiculous, but then part of me is like, that's the only way I can get it done ever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that means for the future, but um, I, I do recognize that that's what happened after two and a half years of writing this book was I needed a lot of quiet and mm-hmm. alone time and solitude to basically just be with myself yeah. and and um, and read other people's work, too, while I'm thinking about this. I mean, reading MFK Fisher is always really good for me because she's she writes in a way that I will never be capable of, which is really economically and really tight. Like mm. I, I am, I've become, I've learned that there's this phrase called purple prose, which is probably an, uh, an, an insult, mm. but, but it's someone that actually writes in a way that you're moving through a cadence of mm-hmm. their language. And mm-hmm. I do that. You, I, do, you definitely do. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and I, I'm, I see it as a strength because I feel like it's conversational, but I would love to spend more time in the copy editing phase and learning how to keep that cadence without being so, I don't know, like too much, you know, yeah. like, so it's sometimes those sentences are just too fucking much. So, mm-hmm. So I'm. I mean, you know, I hope and I and I project that you know I'll be writing a lot more in the future, and that's what this always was. And to go back to one of your questions, did I always know I was going to write a book? Yes. Did I know it was going to be this book? No. And it came from that one essay that kind of provided me the space to talk about a memoir. I actually thought, you know, in my projection, I was like, I I thought the reason I could accept, I have commitment issues. <laughs> with careers Uh but baking and cooking and being in the restaurant world was never going to keep me from writing and so it was easy for me to dig into that space and write about food and um, personal food narratives were just sort of coming into like the more common not just Ruth Reichel purview of like magazines wanted to publish long form essays SFA started publishing things and Mm. so so more space got created for that kind of thinking and writing. And because, you know, this whole sort of movement happened, I wrote that essay in Food and Wine. It was a really genuine, visceral and immediate reaction to a lot of things that I was seeing. And it was actually an email I sent to a very good friend, <laughs> by and large. Mm. And it was it was one of those things where I was just really angry and I wrote a letter yeah. to, to no one. Yeah. And just was full of rage and fire, and I have a thousand of these kinds of letters in mm-hmm. my in my on my computer. If I ever die, people are gonna be like, "Oh my god, this fucking crazy bitch!" <laughs> but I get a lot of my feelings out in that way, and then I can be more useful. Yeah, um, I don't run lukewarm. I'm I'm very high. I run very hot, mm-hmm. and uh, and I um. So, so kind of doing that is a space for me to mitigate what is useful in the public arena. And that essay just sort of catapulted me into more space where mm-hmm. I could kind of write a little bit more about this experience. And if I had, my plan was to write personal essay about food in a little bit more of a safe space and then work my way into short story and then move my way into fiction, you know, yeah. long form fiction. 
Um, which, you know, hopefully I'll have a long enough life to do that. But, yeah, you yeah, know. you got time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Plenty of time. But did I, did I think I was going to be writing something like this? No. Um, but I'm glad I did, and I'm, I'm honored that I had the chance. And honestly, I think in some ways I needed to sort of deal with a lot of these things because they kept coming up. A lot of the topics in this book were showing themselves in other work, and I didn't necessarily want that. So yeah. now they're they're managed, they're dealt with, and I can really truly like move forward and think about what else I want to write and yeah. and say. That actually sounds like good advice to a writer to to like email your best friend mm-hmm. a bunch of really intense thoughts. So you know when when they're there, yeah. or but really also just to write. To write when that when the idea is there, when mm-hmm. the passion's there, when the fire's mm-hmm. there, it seems like you're you're really good at doing that. Um, but but about your process, what it sounds like too is that you're like sitting there watching the clouds form and figuring out like mm-hmm. what shape they're going to take, mm-hmm. and really like ruminating and mm-hmm. ruminating, and then you're like. Yeah. It's go time. That's it. Motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Allow me to speculate. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a new segment. <laughs> <laughs> Allow, Allow Kenneth me to, uh, speculate. to speculate. No, no. In a, all, all seriousness. Um, uh, the, the book is uh, somewhat chronological, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but but it doesn't seem like it was all, it, it was obviously not written chronologically. So, yeah. in, in, you know. Um, to borrow from Mike's point, there there were these points. It seems like that you definitely wanted to put into the book. They were they were very important. The more, they were the backbone of the book. Yeah. But everything in between possibly just kind of came up as you developed those m- more your main mainstream themes or, yeah. or what what yeah, have absolutely. you. Absolutely. Like, everything else kind of yeah. fell together. Yeah. And, yeah. There there definitely was a body an outline that uh, we kind of developed after I kind of dumped a lot of those impassioned treaties on my editors Mm -hmm. and they were like, okay, we need to mark this and we need to, and you're right, Kenneth, it was really like, for me, I think they would have been comfortable with a little bit more of a creative approach to the timeline, but really, truly, there was so much there was a lot of work, emotional labor that went into this book, and I couldn't really take any more of myself to figure out like what could have been a more interesting structure. So it kind of came chronologically and was, was outlined chronologically, but you're absolutely right. It wasn't written that way. A lot of these chapters were written in of themselves, and transitioning them together and binding them together was hopefully something we did, you know, mostly without noticing but also it it was it was a little bit of like a a a knitting project of making sure this tied in with this and sure man i tell you like copy editors are geniuses you know and i really enjoyed the copy editing process um because that was the closest that i felt to the same kind of satisfaction i get like in a pastry kitchen it's incredibly technical and it's really satisfying yeah (laughs) to be able to go in and chop and cut and move and think through like the architecture of something is really was really satisfying for me so now that i know when you know i've never had to write obviously a book before um but it now i i I know and i i have i have permission from myself to be messy because i know it's you know not to make i hate dumb metaphors but like it you know i can remember whenever i was first baking 
And I remember being worrying. I used to make these huge layer cakes at City House, and I would get really worried for Sunday supper, and I would make these layer cakes, and I'd be so excited. But there's a process that looks really bad when you're making a layer cake. And there's something called a crumb coat, right? Like where you look you look like you've just made a disaster of a cake because you just have messy crumbs everywhere and your your frosting is full of things and it's half it's half ice. But that's a really important stage. And then you go and you put that cake in the fridge and let it kind of firm up so that you can then apply a more beautiful layer and and whatever like I'm not a big cake decorator, but if you're going to do that, like then there's three more steps. And so it it felt like the the same thing I realized when like I literally would walk through the kitchen as I was taking it to the walk in being like it's just the crumb coat because I was so worried someone was going to think because that's what you do when you're a beginner you just Mm -hmm. you you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing Mm -hmm. so you try to perfect it right there so that only the the only thing people see is is the best of what you've done and you can't do that the process is messy Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to let people see that, like editors and your co-cooks and chefs and your sous chefs and, Mm. like, the people around you. And that's a beginner's problem, right? Like, realizing that, like, you know, you don't have to feel insecure about how messy the cake looks in the crumb coat phase because it's not done. And it's the same with writing. And you just got to be ugly and messy and get it out, get the words on the page because the beauty and the real craft of writing and the real skill of writing is going back in mm-hmm. and figuring out where everything needs to be and if it needs to be. And and then you you have something that you can put in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing that with editors in a, in a very big publishing house like Penguin Press mm-hmm. was terrifying for the first six months. And I'm not altogether like an incredibly trusting person. So I'm like, you know, I'm like, no, I'm going to wait. And I kept waiting. And you're sending them your life. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. And so I, I, I kept waiting until it was presentable. Mm-hmm. And finally, my editor, God bless her. She's a dear woman. And I don't know what I would do without her. Um, she was like, knock it off. Mm-hmm. I, I need to see. I need to see it all. I yeah. need to see. I need to see the mess so that mm-hmm. we know where we're mining for gold. Like we got to see it all. Yeah. So that's a really, you know, that's a, a very basic thing. I'm not like I'm not a pedigreed writer. You know, I didn't. I went to community college. You know, like I write because it is something inside of me. But I'm not altogether like you know. I didn't go to Brown and get an MFA. You yeah. know, I mean. I am learning so much about this process in real time, which is apparently how I do everything. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the hard way, but it's really the only way that's ever been accessible to me. And so um, it takes some time, obviously, but I think it takes time regardless of how you do it. And I've just been really fortunate to find myself around people that communicate honestly and are dedicated to me being a, a better writer every time. So. That's a great essay too, the crumb the crumb layer. Yeah. Have you written that essay yet? No, but I should. <laughs> that's that's good. That's good stuff. Um, and and I agree that I think that a lot of times the most enjoyable phase of putting a book together is that like final kind of sculpting stage where you're like, I could do this forever. Yeah. Just like uh-huh. making it a little bit better every time. Because it's like you spend an hour. Yeah, there's some danger in there too, though. (laughs) Sure, sure. And I feel like that's, you talk about metaphors. I feel like there's a whiskey metaphor in there of like where you were talking about like 
well, I don't want to water it down yeah. too much, mm. but like I do want to, it's just like, it's like proofing whiskey. You know, yeah. it's like you can add, you need more water. Yeah. You always need, you know, from where it comes out of the barrel, you, you almost always need a little water to really know what you have. But if you go too far, then you just have watered down shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think that there, there's a good metaphor there too. Yeah, interesting. I but you have to that. trust the person mm-hmm. adding the water. Right. Mm-hmm. And the person that's, tasting it that says it needs more water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you might not want more water in there, Mike. Yeah. You might like it as it is. But then this guy who waters down whiskey all day. Right. Every day for a living. Mm-hmm. Mm. He has a different opinion than you. Yeah. And he's not just and he's not just doing it for me. He's doing he's it for, doing it for yeah. everyone. Yeah. The collective. Yeah. yeah. That, I mean, that's why you end up with like the geniuses and masters of old medley and Wathens. Why old medley twelve years? What eighty six point nine proof or something like that? Eighty seven point four. Sure. And it's like always going to be that proof because they've perfected it over over years. Um, I don't think anyone ever does that with writing, but maybe. And that, I don't know, maybe and Lisa and that's probably will editor. eventually <laughs> when she's on book book number eight. <laughs> Um, do you know where you're going next? And I, I don't, yeah. Do you know what is next for you? Is there going to be some fiction you've posted before about maybe like a screen, uh, a screenplay mm-hmm. or, um, but yeah, what's next for you for writing? You know, I think I, I'm, I, I will be working on things like short stories and, screenplays and I think there's space for people to break out of their niche but I haven't reached that place yet you know Mm. um it's uh it's interesting in our culture how incredibly small people want you to stay (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh I, I uh I'm struggling a little bit with that of like staying in my lane you know and um being this chef writer Um, I had sort of a bit of a personal like thrashing about this year where I just don't I I, I kept saying to myself I don't want to write about restaurants anymore Mm. or ever I never Mm. did honestly Mm -hmm. Um, and I especially with sort of the the petty weird small town shit that kind of kicked up from this book was like I absolutely don't want to keep revisiting these spaces that felt really important to me um, that feel complicated now Mm. and but i i really had to turn it around and uh i I went to new orleans you know a friend of mine has an apartment there that she is not staying in because she just is you know she's bought a home and so she's in this transition and i can borrow her apartment and i just stayed there i was supposed to stay there for a whole month but the hurricane came and um oh dang that's right yeah so but i was there for two and a half weeks and i was i got that solitude and i got that um that quiet and i i really went down with the intention of getting my head back around writing about food and it occurred to me and i realized i can i can i can still do this work and it doesn't have to be about restaurants you know mm-hmm. I've, I've been so frustrated by restaurants for so long and the culture that they kind of stain f- like food what I consider true food culture um, and uh, so I went down to New Orleans and I think I got there I think I, I think I re-arrived at a space where I fell back in love with food 
separately from mm. my experiences in restaurants. Um, and that being said, you know, I've, I've been doing some consulting work in uh, Savannah with Mishama Bailey and Jono Marsano, and um, they've built a beautiful kitchen. And I'm all of a sudden working with these young cooks who are earnest and good and unlike a lot of things I've seen and are dedicated to learning. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's like a new, uh, in this kitchen anyway, there's like a new crop of young cooks coming up that uh, I think know the score. I think restaurant owners are meeting them where they are, uh, at least in this restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something really inspiring happening in that kitchen of these young cooks who have come to Mashama Bailey's kitchen to learn about how she has built her life Mm -hmm. and um so i'm you know as much as like and that was just you know me going to new orleans to try to sort of wash that man right out of my hair about restaurants it's really funny to me that the second i kind of got squared away with that in my writing space i ended up just a couple of weeks later finding myself in a kitchen that i was emotionally inspired by Mm -hmm. um and meeting young especially these young women uh in these kitchens that are just fucking go-getters and mm-hmm. like dedicated and like bright-eyed and you know there's you know there's no yes chef bullshit there's no mm-hmm. there's like you know there's there's some real truth to what she's doing in these kitchens and so uh it's funny to me that i cleared all this space um and now i'm finding myself again in kitchens in a restaurant kitchen where i can like have conversations about the you know the professional aspect of food which um i thought i was trying to get away from so mm-hmm. i'm in this interesting transition um i think i'll be writing about food for some time i hope mm-hmm. i get you know more chances to write about food it'll be probably a little less personal i mean it'll still be personal i write things from a personal space <laughs> always mm-hmm. um but i really am writing a lot about food and uh i mean the texture of food and the and the beauty of food and the actual sort of um tactile nature and sensations of food and Mm -hmm. so i'm kind of getting back in that space of really like identifying what's beautiful not about the idea of food or the community of food but really talking about food again so that's exciting yeah that's a thing i feel like anyone can go back to MFK Fisher's work to totally. for stuff like that because she Completely. can turn a lunch with her daughter Completely. in a town she doesn't really know much about mm-hmm. and may not even know much about the food, mm-hmm. but she's going to talk about this lunch like it was the most important That's day it. of the year, yeah. you know, where, yeah. you know, and it probably was. Yeah. Um, so I feel like you're the new MFK Fisher. Yeah. So congratulations. <laughs> no. uh, Take it. That's, that, that makes more sense. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that feels truer than Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, only because I want it. <laughs> only because yeah. that would be an incredible, like, you know, lineage to follow. And mm-hmm. it's definitely, her work definitely is a big inspiration for me. And, um, you know, if, you've read this book uh you'll see like she had an impact many times on not just my work but like my personal sort of identity Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways so yeah and we share that a little bit just because it was her book a cordial water Mm -hmm. which really made me feel like i could do a book on the stuff that i was doing or stuff i had done where i couldn't really see what a book like that would be but when i read hers it was just like oh well you know you just 
talk about what what's really in your heart and what yeah. you're passionate about and what you love about all these different maybe plants or drinks or whatever yeah. like you know she you know just there's no she sort of lets you know that there's no like roadmap right well and but she's really good yeah she's heart. really also good at speaking to what's right in front of you mm. and sometimes that's enough yeah mm. you know sometimes that becomes um you know <laughs> Sometimes that becomes kind of like going or reading your horoscope where if you say what's just enough, you're giving people space to imbue their own need from just a conversation about a peach, you know? Yeah. Um, And if you kind of give people some space in your writing to find themselves, I think that's a real beautiful gift. And she was masterful at it. Masterful at it. So I'm, I'm kind of practicing getting out of the way a little mm. bit you know yeah. and, and the words um and that f- it feels great because i was this was all this book was <laughs> was just every ounce of me yeah. you know like to the point where like i i felt like i had to sort of reclaim a lot of myself after i i went through this process um, yeah and so now it feels really freeing and exciting to be treating the work of writing with a little bit more distance mm-hmm. and finding some power in that distance. Mm. We'll see if I succeed. But <laughs> Reading uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, the book we're talking about today, Lisa Donovan's masterpiece of a memoir um, that is recently in paperback and you can find all over Nashville and wherever you buy books. One thing I learned in it is like Lisa has spent a lot of time in the front of house mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you really you really understand like the role of the front of house and, mm-hmm. and, and the differences between being front of house and back of house and the differences between even, you know, being the pastry chef as, as opposed to being more like a chef, which you did with the buttermilk road stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have all these, all these different like experiences, but a lot of your experiences as a server or I don't, is there a different, or are they calling it different, something different now than servers? No. I'm learning. I'm learning every day. There's new terms for everything, um, which is good. But uh, this was like Nashville, early 2000s. It was. I know uh, people in my neighborhood and people I've talked to, even Kenneth right here. It's like this this golden age of Nashville. The Titans come into town. Yeah, yeah, speak a little bit about that. Uh, every year before you got here. <laughs> just kidding. Wow. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Blooper reel. Um, Titans. Yeah. yeah, y'all talk about you know what was so special about that time and and Margot was was mm-hmm. uh, the restaurant was really sort of a, a leading light in mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. restaurant world changing and and all that that time period. <laughs> what do you got, Kenneth? I, I don't know. He brought up Margot, and I, I promised I would not bring up Margot. Margot's going on 20 years now, right? Yeah, Is that it's correct? Incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. An old gas station that my father used to work at. I mean, wow. it's a seminal restaurant. Like, it is important. And it was the first place I ever walked into where I realized this is a profession. This mm-hmm. isn't a transitory job. Like, I had, I hope that I was clear about the relevance of that in the book and it was the first place that I saw all of these weird that at the time felt really weird like 
I didn't have any friends that cared about food. I mean, mm. I think one of the quotes from the book is like, all of my friends were like, tragically skinny yogas, you know, yogi people that smoked mm. a lot of cigarettes. They didn't do yoga for health. They did it to be thin. And I mm. was literally like, two kids, little chubby all the time, mm. like making food, eating food, talking about food, trying to figure out where to get good food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and no one was really interested in my world, you know. Um, and uh, I did these, I, 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 outside of trade wins, like trade wins was definitely sort of this novelty experience where it felt more like I was in love with, you know, Tom and the thing he built specifically than necessarily the food, even mm. though that's when my baking started. And that's when I started, you know, but I didn't, you know, that was it was still like a, a, a means to an end, right? Like I'm going to do this until I can be a curator or a mm or a you know art conservator or whatever whatever it is I was trying to do before mm. um, before my real life happened and and then I you know we moved to Nashville and and things just started to to move in a, a very specific direction that was always about food and walking into Margot Cafe and Bar was the first time I realized like this is a job like this isn't just a job so that I can make 78 bucks a night or 150 bucks a night at Jackson's or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is a job that if I show up and learn and am ready, she will teach me and I will learn. And it would it was hard and complicated. And the beauty, I think, for me in someone like Margot is that she was the first person I had ever met that simply was unapologetic about her expectations. Mm. And that was hopefully what I wrote and said in the book. Um, I think a lot of people mistook what I was saying about Margot somehow in the book, but it doesn't matter. What I what I really wanted to show about someone like Margot is that in 2000, and I think I started working for her in 2005, and to realize that she had only been open for two years, I think, at that point. And how much she had already established an incredibly high bar for our service, for the wine service, for learning, you know, for, for what I needed to know as a server was remarkable to me. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like it. So I think, you know, her value can't be understated in this community. I don't think we'd have a lot of what we have. Yeah, well, and you seemed, when I first started working with you, and I had already known you a little bit through Joy Shaw. Um, so I kind of knew you as a person before mm -hmm. we started working together, but um, I feel like you always were kind of more of a uniter and uh, an empathizer with the whatever folks were going on in the front of the house as well. Yeah. Um, so it was it was cool reading that part of the book and and knowing where that came from. It came from actually being there. But what mm -hmm. um, I feel like you've had so many experiences in in uh in the restaurant world mm -hmm. and and in the culture of a restaurant because mm -hmm. but being back now in the kitchen you talked a little bit about how you felt like some things have changed and you're seeing like maybe some different attitudes what do you see do you see um that this is like a, a momentary kind of blip as far as restaurant culture is changing or do you mm -hmm. see this as a more of a long-term thing I mean, I see I see a very bifurcated thing happening. I mm. see my friends who own restaurants literally killing themselves to try to make it 
like a, a, a situation that is better than it has ever been that where they can still accomplish the vision of a restaurant and what a, a restaurant is they're struggling greatly in finding people who are interested in this line of work anymore and mm. that's not for not good reason you know and so um, I see I see this one angle where I have friends who are dedicated to you know bringing restaurants into a space that can be career paths mm. and sustainable career paths and respectable career paths and career paths where we you know get dental insurance and time off and you know and yeah are considered as professionals in our field. I mean, what my my best two of my best girlfriends, um, you know, one of them, you know, was a career bartender and just left, you know, it was during the pandemic, but she was on her way out anyway. And, mm. you know, she's she's working at, um, you know, she's working at Warby Parker now as one of their like top sales people online. And nice. And mm. like, and she is perpetually shocked at the basic civility Mm. of a job like that (laughs) and and in my one of my other best friends is a career server and she's been out in san francisco for the last 12 years and the struggles just never seem to go away it's always the same struggle and Mm. you know we're in our 40s now we're we're grown-ass women and it's like you know it would be really incredible to be having some different conversations however I, i have chef owner friends who have a whole different set of challenges on their end. And mm. so seeing how that's going to play out, I think there's good intention. I think there are people who are dedicated to hospitality that will figure out ways in which we can make this work. But then I'm just skeptical of this country in general at this mm. point and have been for some time. And I just wonder if the bigger picture does not allow us to do what is actually needed to take care of each other. Mm. Um, and that's my that's where it's bifurcated because I see people trying to do the work and trying to make it happen and trying to turn the engine over. And I just feel like we live in a country where that's going to increasingly become more impossible. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah, that's like the, the text that Kenneth and I have been sending to each other more often in the past year, like Canada. <laughs> just oh. text. Yeah. I know. West. Yeah. The west side of Canada, bro. Yeah. I'm there. Yeah. And I'll say, now Costa Rica would be much nicer. <laughs> and he's like, uh, maybe Quebec, <laughs> Montreal. Uh, I don't yeah, see you I mean, in Montreal, like, though. We talk about Canada a lot, but I, neither one I of us I kept on really imagining <laughs> like Trudeau would uh, buy a Caribbean <laughs> island. and <laughs> Right. And that would be. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's your solution. <laughs> that would be uh, where we would defect. Huh? Sh- should, we, should we boost news? I, I still wanted to stay on the same point that okay. Lisa was was talking about. It seems like, uh, first of all, I want to compliment you on how you don't say, or at least not today, Lisa, you don't say the restaurant industry. And that's that's big to me because, it, like, uh, to say the word indust- industry mm-hmm. is to to make it industrial. It's mm-hmm. just not like yeah. it, it's impersonal and uh, it is. Yeah, it's a it, it, it's a gross. Uh, misrepresentation of res- restaurants or res- mm-hmm. restauranting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trajectory of it this year coming out of the pandemic has been very hard to navigate. It seems like uh, every other week, the restaurants that we, that we can we concern ourselves with uh, mm-hmm. just go, goes in completely different directions, mm-hmm. only to come back to another maybe possibly brilliant or 
great headspace to be in, mm. only to go back another way. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are both exciting, as in we don't know how things are going to turn out times, mm. mm-hmm. but also incredibly frustrating because mm-hmm. we have a lot of these same problems mm-hmm. that kind of just push straight through the pandemic and continue and continue yeah. with at full steam, the same, 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 same amount of momentum that they had prior to the pandemic. I'm not speaking of anything specific. Well, there's certainly hope in the challenges, right? It's uh, harder and harder to stay in that space. You know, and I can remember last year talking to, there's an incredible high school in New York that is um, training high school students to be, to work in the hospitality space, uh, whether it's restaurants or hotels or whatever. Um, And they're learning hospitality business they're learning front of the house back of the house they're some of them are chef led some of them are you know business led Um, and every year they have um, a speaker come or maybe every semester or quarter or whatever it may be but um, they had me come and speak to them just about sort of you know these poor kids these are graduating high school students and this was you know last October when Restaurants were dying. We're, mm-hmm. we're gone. We, we, we're we're yeah. we're done. We, in trouble. There, we know PPP was just a a, a a a straw. Everyone was trying to you know grasp at, and like we we mm. had no idea if we were going to survive mm-hmm. as as a culture and what it was going to look like this time now, right? Like this time next year, which is now. And these kids were like, "Holy shit! <laughs> we you know we, are we going to have?" Like, what do we do? We're yeah. 18 years old. We are trained up for this, and this doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And even though it continued to exist, it doesn't exist in the same way that they were expecting, which I think had is good in some ways and in some ways is terrifying for them. Um, and I, I, I said to them, I said, look, the only thing I can really tell you and give you right now is that you have an opportunity and it feels less i feel you know i my my hope waxes and wanes sometimes you know and i try to stay optimistic um again it gets harder and harder sometimes but back then i was really clinging to sort of this optimism of we have a moment you know there's hope in the challenge and you have an opportunity that none of us had which is that you know the plane has been grounded It's in the shop. It's mm-hmm. it's not. We've been trying to fix it mid-flight, and you guys have it now in the g- garage, and you can take it apart, put it back together so that it works better for what you guys need. And I think the thing you guys need to be doing as careerists in this field is talking to people who have been doing this for 20 years and ask us where 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 did it go wrong? How come mm. it wasn't more solvent in a moment like this? How come we're all six weeks away from just absolute failure and destruction yeah. and ira- like just it, that is not a business model. Mm. It's just simply not. Not to even mention like you know how you support your employees. So like back it all the way up to how do you build restaurants again where they can either be small enough to sustain just a small, small group of people. And if you are going to get large enough, what does that actually look like so that it is not exploitive of everyone except for the top dollar? Mm-hmm. Like, you guys have a chance to, to, to take all those pieces apart and figure out 
how they can reasonably be put back together. And, you know, in my estimation, it's the former. We just make this back to a non-industry and we make this back into a space where restaurants is a person feeding another person and employing three people to help feed those people. And that's not big business and that's not a capitalist mindset. But Jesus Mm. fucking Christ, how many millionaires do we need? And that's I don't I don't know a lot of real cooks. I mean, that's not true. You know, something changed along the lines where 10 years ago, people thought getting into food was going to make you rich and famous because it sometimes does. Right. And Mm. like um, I've had so many people say to me, literally just three days ago, I thought you were rich. I mean, by the way, who says that to people? (laughs) Fuck off. And no, like I like I've been raising two kids for 22 years and I I'm very worker class Mm. and I I'm not a celebrity i don't have a pr company i don't i don't like i don't you know i don't have the things that i think people think you have and there's this strange expectation of what it means to be a quote unquote chef in this world Mm -hmm. you know and part of the understanding of that needs to change now Mm. you know like i live in a very modest you know, 900 square foot house that I was lucky enough to be able to purchase with my husband almost 10 years ago. We couldn't do that right now in Nashville, you know? I mean, and uh, it's so bizarre to me um, what people think of other people's lives. And there's a real strange misconception um, about what, what work in the food industry can bring you. Mm-hmm. And I I do, you know, put myself in the public eye because it's important to my writing. And I want to find myself in situations like I just found myself in where I'm like mentoring young cooks. That's really important to me. It If I can, you know, there's a really incredible pastry cook there named Sam and she's fucking badass and she's just ready to go. And if mm. I can somehow figure out how to give her my years of experience to make sure she doesn't have to obstacle the way I did or whatever. She's going to have her own challenges, but I can at least give her some great recipes and give her some good guidance and be there Mm -hmm. while she goes through this so that by the time she's 44 and maybe has two kids, she has things a little bit more locked down, you Mm -hmm. know, and I don't know. So there's, you know, well, and she doesn't need to feel self-conscious about walking that layer cake back. Exactly. And right. <laughs> that, but that that seems like it could be a really small thing, right? Mm-hmm. But maybe it's not. It's not. It's, it's part. It's part of like believing in yourself, and yeah. that's a big thing that mentors can do. Mm-hmm. You know, and if mm-hmm. you, that that's so that's not a small thing. That's yeah. a huge thing. It's a huge thing. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, and the time has come for. <laughs> <laughs> Booze News with Kenneth Dedman. Dun, 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 dun. Don't edit this part out, Mike. <laughs> we'll start off with uh, something easy. What's oh. going on? What's booze worthy out there? Uh, well, Mike Nicholas Cage got drunk in Las Vegas last week. <laughs> oh, I love the beginning <laughs> that of was that. A strong start. Yes. <laughs> Moving on. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> In whiskey news, mm. uh, Peyton Manning's Sweden Cove is set to release, I believe this week, uh, Marianne Eves, uh, who uh, formerly Marianne Barnes, formerly right. master distiller at 
Castle and Key, mm-hmm. who we're huge fans of. Sure. Is it whom? Of whom we are huge fans. I like yeah. the way that sounds. But yeah. I also use the word amongst, which apparently is pretentious. So don't listen to me. The brand Sweet and Co- Cove, mm-hmm. conceived by Peyton Manning amongst fellow <laughs> golf players. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Named after a nine nine hole executive golf course near near South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. <laughs> Likely sourced from George Dickel. Okay. Yeah. Sweet and Cove will mm-hmm. premiere um, at a hundred and ninety dollar per liter price tag. Hmm. Wow. Which is also about the same price as uh, nine holes at Sweet and Co- Sweet and Cove Golf Course. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, Have you tasted any of it yet? No. Okay. No. Um, I, I believe they're just now making the rounds, okay. and I'm pretty sure it's all on Broadway by now. Anyway. Shout out Marianne Eves. Uh, she knows what she's doing, and she's really talented in the distilling world. So. Brilliant. She's so brilliant. It's cool that she's she's on board with Manning and Co. I guess they paid her. Yeah, that's cool. Move on. Good. Yeah. Yeah. What else is going on? Um. It also in whiskey news. Um. I wonder. Do you all ever like read a like read a news story? Maybe interested in the in the in the tagline, the title, but then there's just, like some a very odd fact that never belonged in the story sure mm-hmm. in this case um the buffalo bills the nfl football team mm-hmm. buffalo new york has uh has no- named screwball whiskey a peanut butter uh flavored whiskey is there as their official whiskey sponsor available available um exclusively in the buffalo bills uh football stadium this this season wow. uh the brand is owned by uh California bartender Stephen Young. I met him last uh, couple two years ago. Yeah, when he was making the rounds with the peanut butter whiskey. It's good. Cambodian refugee. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Him and his wife Brittany conceived the brand. Uh, Brittany's a chemist and and an attorney, which which I think is probably very important if you're starting a a uh-huh. whiskey brand. Now, BevIndustry.com. When releasing this uh, this this press release, um, mm-hmm. and, and congra- congratulations to Stephen, pointed out he was a California bartender, mm-hmm. a Cambodian refugee, polio survivor. Mm. Been through a lot. But his wife, chemist, attorney. Chemist, attorney, yeah. Owns his ass. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> it was a rough book. Anything else? 105-year-old Lucia de Clark of New Jersey, um... Overcame uh, COVID, having having had her second, uh, her having had her second Pfizer shot mm-hmm. breakthrough case. Have y'all heard of? Have, do y'all have a lot of friends that have breakthrough cases? Handful. Yeah, handful too. Yeah, I think I've had more than a handful. Mm-hmm. They've been pretty yeah. mild though. Yeah, for yeah. Y- for you guys as well. Yep. Yeah. 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 No one. No one. No one in a bad no. bad situation. Kind of just like a rough cold. Couple days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Couple days. Hundred and five year old Lucia. Dang. Got a breakthrough case. Family very worried. Pulled through okay. Her secret? Every day. She eats nine golden raisins that have been soaked in gin. Oh. For nine days. Apparently Lucia has a has a revolving jar of uh, golden raisin infusion, gin infusion. Mm. That she that she eats every morning along with fresh aloe juice before she brushes her teeth with baking soda. That's the secret. 
And I feel like our listeners at home and abroad um, who create cocktails, we've got plenty of those listeners out there. They create cocktails, they're beverage people, they're bartenders. Um, this is a good story that they could reference for, you know, maybe a cool drink. They could take some golden raisins, soak them in gin, do like a fall Martinez riff and reference this story. Call it the Lucky Lucia. Lucky Lucia. Oh, <laughs> yes. Here we go. That's why we All got right. Lisa in here. All right. All right. Here we go. Oklahoma resident Andrew Erickson, 24 years old, has pled guilty for protesting inside the Capitol building on January the 6th. Oh. Mm. This fucker. <laughs> Andrew is probably uh, most well-known um, of the 650 that have been arrested so far as the guy that took the beer out of Nancy Pelosi's uh, oh, fucking yes. mini fridge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Andrew What's posted, she doing with one beer in there anyway? I feel uh, like she needs at least a six-pack for these what, times. Do you know what kind of beer it was? I feel like it was like a Bud Light or something. but It was a light beer. Miller Light. You're actually closer than, than he was. Coors Light. Y'all are still close, but not there. Uh, let's go south of the border. It's Corona Light. Oh. oh. Wow. Which has a much lower gluten content than either of the beers y'all mentioned. If, if it even has a gluten content. It's a chugger. It's a chugger. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. So in the plea deal, Andrew had to uh, admit to taking the beer. He wasn't convicted of stealing a beer. Mm. But part of his plea deal was he had to admit to taking Nancy Pelosi's beer. <laughs> Did that reduce his sentence somehow? Uh, he hasn't been sentenced yet. Uh, of the 615 that have that have been arrested for protesting inside the Capitol, which is the charge that they're all facing right now, is mm-hmm. protesting inside the Capitol. Looked like breaking and entering to me, but okay. <laughs> of the 615, 75, including Andrew, have pled guilty. What a world. Sheesh. All right, I look forward to a follow-up report on this gentleman's sentencing for taking the Corona light. Yeah. Thanks for the detail on the sure. beer. All right, that's booze news. <laughs> nice. The first live <laughs> booze news in 18 uh, months. 18 I don't know. Months. It's been so a while. I'm glad I was here for it. So great. Um, <laughs> since we have uh, famed pastry chef... James Beard Award-winning writer, the Beyonce of Buttermilk Pie, (laughs) (laughs) here in studio, we talked a little bit about this peanut butter whiskey, which would be a great whiskey to bake with, Mm. honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be really cool to make some cool desserts with that. But talk to me a little bit about your skill and your, um, it's back there, the way that you have used booze in baking Mm. and some of your favorites to use and maybe... Like, what are you looking for when you smell like a rum or you smell a brandy? Or is it just a matter of, well, I'm going to cook out most of the booze here. So I'm just looking for, is there some vanilla coming through? Mm -hmm. Like, what are you looking for? What are some applications that you like with booze and baking? Well, I think I might be opposed to a peanut butter whiskey, not in general, just in baking, because Mm -hmm. I I think I would prefer. For, I'm pretty much, and I'm realizing that this is so much more of like apparently like a personal treatise than I realize. But as I'm talking to these young cooks, I realize I actually don't like a lot of unnecessary roadblocks to one particular, like highlighting one particular flavor. So right. if, if, you know, 
Um, I, and, and sometimes I don't like to cook out the alcohol. Sometimes the alcohol is the feeling that mm. I want. Sometimes I want a little bit of a, like a, a, a deeper feeling of sure. that alcohol to play off of, you know, fruit. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that's really nice. Mm. Um, but uh, or butterscotch pudding. Sometimes you kind of want that. Like yeah. you want to feel like you're having or like a figgy pudding or like a baked steamed pudding or something like that. Sometimes you really want to have that sensation of festivity and, you know, celebration and, and you know, alcohol does that. If I'm looking purely for like flavor addition, I typically like to use uh, rum. Mm. I think rum has something really special to it where you almost don't recognize that it's rum because it plays really well with like citrus flavors and Mm. vanilla. And whereas with whiskey and bourbon and rye and things, it's kind of always clearly, especially if you're not burning off the alcohol. But even when you do burn off the alcohol, you're still dealing with a little bit of, um, and maybe you guys can tell me what this is from, but there's like, um, you know, there's an earthiness that you can't quite, and I don't know if that's because it's in barrels or what, but there's something to uh, bourbon and, and whiskey and, and rye and that sort of outside of um, rum, the brown liquor space that kind of imparts like a, a depth and mm-hmm. it just sort of creates a whole nother level. With rum, I feel like you can actually let it bring other flavors up mm. um and i'm and i'm talking about not a spiced rum or a white rum even but that nice um kind of rich good sipping rum sure you know like an aged rum yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. like a really pretty aged sipping rum really is i think one of the most beautiful things that you can add to a baked Mm-hmm. product any kind and and you know of course like cordials you and i did a lot of like cordial work together sure. and i i think those are pretty accessories mm-hmm. you know i mm-hmm. think they get lost if you add them to actually like a the, the body of something mm-hmm. um but i i like the idea of using things as an accessory i remember mm-hmm. i can remember whenever um oh what's that really pretty lalay remember when everyone oh, yeah. was super excited about lalay like in 2004 or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. lalay was like a really pretty one that you could just almost kind of drizzle on like a a, a gelato or a or a sorbetto or something sure, like sure. that you know and it's it could, like so light it's so light and yeah. it's it's, it's sweet light, and, yeah it's mm-hmm. bright it's sweet enough it's mm-hmm. its own little thing um i don't necessarily do so much of that anymore i'm so much dedicated to now just bringing out the simplicity of everything that like you know the one of the cooks i was working with in savannah was trying to do something with like a ricotta penna cotta and then she was burying it under a bunch of shit and i was like look the whole point here i think tell me if i'm wrong but you want people to taste how hard you worked at making this beautiful ricotta Mm. have like this is the center stage item right so Mm -hmm. like why would you bury it with a bunch of shit that you're just drowning out that ricotta flavor and so now I'm kind of working in a really editorial way where um, unless I, I want the alcohol to be the, you know, again, like a like a, a rich steamed pudding or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, I use I use a little bit of rum just to kick up sort of the I don't know, the the the, the depths of what vanilla can do or the mm-hmm. depths of what orange can do. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And I imagine it's like the grain in whiskey maybe that, that maybe. like you can't really get away from um it's a emulsifying mm. agent in the whiskey and the rum it's called hemicellulose oh, okay mm. 
and especially yeah, if it's knowledge. if it's tie, if you if, if you if, if you you're specifically mentioning vanilla and how mm-hmm. it ties to a vanilla mm-hmm. that, that sounds sounds about right to me when well, rum's cool because you get different uh flavor profiles and such different rums from all the different mm-hmm. countries it comes from mm-hmm. whereas like whiskey and you know especially if you're if you're cooking it down it's not going to change that much mm-hmm. like scotch is definitely different than american bourbon for sure but if you're talking rum even in the Caribbean, you have your Cuban style, which has like the honey and vanilla. You have mm-hmm. your Jamaican style, which has like heavy, pungent, banana, funk. Then you have your rum agricoles from Martinique. Mm. Totally different. Lemongrass, herbaceous yeah. things. Right? So there's all these different things to pull from. So I, I think that that's fascinating. Though. I think I mean, there's so much rum more makes nuance a lot of sense. to yeah. rum. I, and I, I don't, you know, and you guys, like I actually could talk about this for another two hours because I'm so curious. And I feel like there's something about rum that uh, this is me being like really bullshitty esoteric about baking i always try like baking for me is really like i always attribute it to sort of like human interaction <laughs> but like i feel like rum makes sense simply because of what it's made of mm-hmm. to sure you know like it feels like less of a disruption and i don't know in my in my very rudimentary booze knowledge I guess there's a part of me and my very basic understanding of things where it's like, well, of course it feels right. It's made from cane. It's made from this like, say there's similar, maybe similar, but that's probably completely false. I just, it feels like a more familiar thing to introduce to something that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. So I love it. I love I love baking with rum. And also I had to stop using a lot of whiskey and rye and bourbon because I have I have a very unfortunate condition so <laughs> that I can't which is in, like is you know interrupted a lot of my baking world and I'm trying to get back to learning how to bake with the inability to have wheat strains in any of my products. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting change and it's a new challenge. Um but it's not actually a new challenge. It's a new challenge I'm willing to finally admit. So, Whoa, are you are you Celia? It Celia? is. Uh, so I, it's okay. Yes, yes. It's really difficult for me to admit, but like I have been marking as celiac. Um, I got diagnosed with Hashimoto's some time ago, and basically all of the warnings were like, if you mind your manners you can avoid other autoimmune disorders. And I was like, mind my manners. Who the Mm. fuck you think you're talking Mm -hmm. to? And I proceeded to eat and drink and do whatever I wanted Mm -hmm. and get sicker and sicker. And so now I'm definitely marking with this, with this issue. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's challenge as a baker (laughs) to have, Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a challenge I now have to finally accept that I was in denial about for about seven years. And I kept trying to sort of mitigate it. But now it's like, well, I have to sort of accept that this is a real limitation, but also an opportunity. And I can start to find other things and, you know, relearn a lot of baking, mm-hmm. um, which is which is exciting. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's also a lot of the reason why I'm like attaching myself to this idea of rum, I think, too, just because. I've always used it, but now I almost solely use it whenever I'm trying to add that sort of mm-hmm. richness to or, or layers of, of baking. What's an ingredient that you feel like if you walk in, you know, you're coming into, you know, a kitchen in Savannah, you're going to you're going to help out. You're going to consult a little bit. What's an ingredient that you feel like you see it and you're like, oh, there's my old friend 
or you know like mm-hmm. is there a, is there a flower that's really specific for you is there a salt that you mm-hmm. feel like this but you know using this salt is super uh crucial is there a sugar that you feel like people um, should know about I is think it the buttermilk broadly yeah. i'm always most excited about the fruit that I see like I always gravitate towards the fruit like whatever fruit is available that's what I will fixate on Mm. Um, and then I think the next thing I get excited about is butter and dairy Um, and uh, I get really excited about I I know my preferences in butter and I know my preferences in in buttermilk in particular but I love walking into um, strangers kitchens and seeing what they're what their dairy mm. you know, larder looks like, you yeah, know, like yeah. it's different based on where you go, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, going into San Francisco, buttermilk is not a popular thing, and yeah. people have instead a lot of like, um, you know, fermented like kefir yogurts and things that are like goat's milks, yeah, you know, things that are very different than the things we gravitate towards in the South. So that kind of becomes something really interesting to me. And I know what I like, but I like more getting to use products I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of I was executing a, a dessert for a very big, um, important event that I wasn't willing to fuck up or or experiment on when I was out in San Francisco. And I really wanted buttermilk. I was being presented with all these other options. And I was like, I really need buttermilk. Yeah. And I, you know, a chef friend of mine who lives out there, he took me to um, like this sort of Ukrainian market, this Russian Ukrainian market and they had this beautiful Ukrainian buttermilk. Whoa. And it was rich and beautiful, and it was very similar, if not... I mean, it was just different. It wasn't better, but it was exciting in its Mm -hmm. differences Mm -hmm. um, from the Cruz's buttermilk that I always use here, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is the perfect buttermilk. And like that, if I walk in and see Cruz's buttermilk, I'm like, hey! Like, that's the one that I'm like, yes, great. I, like I can do 5,000 things with you. Um, that was when I realized you can just drink buttermilk. Right. I, I'd never yeah. considered mm-hmm. that until tasting that stuff. It's and I was really like, great. And I really appreciate um, how unwilling they have been to get as big as they could have gotten. You know, like they're like, it can only be this good at this scale. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and I really value that. So. I think that's yeah. That's so opposite of uh, just anything. Everybody else, food related. Else. Yeah, like <laughs> you can't grow. You yeah. can't grow. Yeah. Well, then you're dying. You know, yeah. it's like well, no, not necessarily. This right. is just what we do. Yeah. Um, is there a butter that that we need to know about that maybe we don't know about? Is there like a butter out there that we're just are we missing out on life? I don't want to um, miss out on butter. You know, I mean, if you can get <laughs> like you know butter made in France, you're doing great. But mm-hmm. also. I mean, I don't really like to be too elitist in my baking practices, and I I really would prefer to make it accessible to everyone. And I think the thing everyone can get that is really great um, quality is Plugra. Mm -hmm. It's it's not cheap. It's not the cheapest butter, but it is the best butter in like a public supermarket that I Mm -hmm. think you can get. Um, and if you can't get Plugra, just get the unsalted Land O'Lakes mm-hmm. and stretch, you know, use that. That is a fine butter. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a perfectly workable butter. Mm-hmm. It makes a great pie crust every single time. It's really, it's really consistent. It is, it's a 
perfectly good butter. Well, let's talk about France a little bit because that's kind of this cool high note that I feel like mm. you end the book on. Yeah. Or it's it's towards the end. Yeah. I don't remember if it's the exact last chapter. So, yeah, yeah, I think it is the end. But there's a lot of perspective in there mm-hmm. with what has come previously in the book and stuff. And you're talking about falling you know, back in love with this rhythm of the kitchen and being with your daughter and being with your friends and but but uh coming from that southern place where you're you know okay where's the buttermilk okay the buttermilk's over here mm-hmm. here's the perfect peaches that have mm-hmm. just come in that that they're perfect to talk to me talk to me about going to france mm-hmm. and looking at a different sort of bounty um mm-hmm. and what that was like for you and just well yeah. i'll start with what's so special about learning to cook in the south which i think is such a strength when you're going elsewhere Um, And this is the thing I'm learning that I'm trying to communicate to younger cooks, which is if you can kind of learn, you know, obviously it's it's tropish to say if you can learn the rules, then you can break them. But that's not even what I mean. Like if you can learn how to bring the best out of an ingredient, whatever ingredient that is, like learning how to identify its strengths and weaknesses. That's why I'm drawn to fruit. Like taste the fruit. What does it need? What does it not need? How Mm -hmm. like I've put... I mean, I'm not like, you know, I'm not Alice Waters. This isn't Chez Panisse. But even at like Husk, when I got a perfect peach, I was very, very hesitant to do anything Mm -hmm. to that peach, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so I would oftentimes just try to create as little around that peach as possible. I'm never going to put just a peach on a plate. Frankly, I don't think I've ever met a peach that deserves that yet like you you go to california and you can find an apricot that deserves to be next to a bari date and you're like what and then you eat it and you're like oh my god and it's perfect and there's no reason to do anything to these things and we do get beautiful nearly perfect peaches but i you know i i always kind of want to give it a little bit of something and and so for me it becomes reduct a reductive process of how to do just enough to bring out a specific um highlighting of a flavor whether it's buttermilk or fruit or the pie Mm -hmm. crust or whatever and um i think the more you're tuned into your ingredient and your product you can kind of do anything right which i think is a very southern way of baking Mm -hmm. is paying attention to what is available to you working with your atmosphere your you know your cooking conditions your what you have on hand is a really big way i learned how to cook Mm -hmm. you know like Mm -hmm. just in general um by and large whenever i was you know cooking out of my kitchen and selling cakes I couldn't necessarily afford the ingredients to make the thing that someone was paying me $30 to make all the time Mm -hmm. because I was never ahead of it. I was Mm -hmm. always like, you're going to give me $30? Okay, I need that $30 and you haven't given it to me yet. I've got eight right now. What can I get? I definitely have to get the eggs and I definitely have to get the milk. Mm -hmm. What do I have? Oh, you're, you know, let me cut this with some cornmeal because I've got a bag of cornmeal that I can use. Well, what does that mean? That means probably I need to add some more buttermilk. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means I probably need to add some more baking soda. And all of a sudden you become masterful at knowing how to use what you have. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to me is a huge strength of baking. And it takes a lot of that sort of intimidation out of it and cooking in general. I think that's how people mostly cook, right? Mm -hmm. But no one ever 
No one ever puts that into the baking space. We, If you know enough about baking and you practice enough about baking, you can do it with baking too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might not always get the perfect thing, but you'll get something and then you'll know what didn't work and what did work. And hopefully it's not for something you sold somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, so when I go to a place like France and I'm teaching cooking workshops and I'm taking people to markets, that's the lesson. The mm-hmm. lesson isn't let's squeeze this into what we want let's instead put ourselves into this space take what we can find bring it back to the kitchen size it up what can we do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and figure it out then which sounds really basic but people actually aren't taught to do that um people get really uh i I think with this strange weird like chef culture that we've (laughs) filled our our kitchens with there's this idea that there's a right way to do it or there's an expectation of perfection and sometimes you can just slice potatoes and put them in some hot oil and put some salt on them. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know and if you've got some pretty herbs from the garden toss those in there mm-hmm, i mean it's mm-hmm. not you know this is food it's basic mm-hmm. it's a basic way of interacting you can have missteps it's okay But the key is, I mean, of course, we're not talking about restaurant service. We're talking about going to the market and having a French workshop in France. The thing that is really important is is sort of communicating the full potential of something like the Mm -hmm. butter in France is no joke. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 nothing like you can find anywhere. And it's becoming less and less easily found. You kind of have to go to these little niche places in Normandy. You can buy it for a lot of money in Paris, but, you know, it's getting harder and harder to find these, like, really pure ingredients that are so powerful whenever you're introducing someone to an ingredient. And, I mean, to me, the conversation is always about what it needs and what it doesn't need, Mm -hmm. you know? And just, you know, eat that butter with some bread. (laughs) Just, just put it on some bread and a little salt if it needs it and yep. and eat it and you know um that's a meal and yeah it's in almost France. it's almost like you are discovering those things that are would be in the margins of like all the old cookbooks that you've looked through mm-hmm. old church cookbooks that you've mm-hmm. championed and looked through um our old grandma's recipes mm-hmm. sometimes there's some instructions in there in the margins sometimes there's not but right. it seems like what you've come to is like discovering what all what all those mm-hmm. margin comments would be. Right. You know, like right. Right. don't forget to do this. If you don't have this, add this. A lot of times that's not there in the recipe. That's right. So that's kind of like you're a conduit for that, I feel like. That's, well, that's nice which is kinda to cool. Hear. I mean yeah. and the version of that in the South wouldn't be butter and bread. It would be cornbread and buttermilk. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're like the version of that in San Francisco is just a Bari date, you know, mm-hmm. like there are versions of that kind of simplicity. And then, of course, like you want if you want to start crafting things around this, that's a different kind of skill. Right. But mm-hmm. like, I think people need to be shown at this point in our weird cultural space that we're in that food is accessible to you and it's it's meant to not to be cheesy but it's just meant to nourish you Mm -hmm. and that means nourish your comfort with it nourish your like interactions with other humans over it like if you feel intimidated going to a farmer's market 
because you've watched all these chef programs and it's failed, right? <laughs> like, mm. like you should be able to go and talk to a farmer and ask him what he would do with that chicken because he knows the quality of that chicken. And I don't mean the the quality as if good or bad. I mean, like, what's the meat like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He'll tell you. Mm-hmm. You can ask him that. You can say, like, is this a young chicken? Mm-hmm. What do you do with this? Do you stew it or do you fry it? Do you, What do you do? Mm-hmm. Like, what's it best for? That's a conversation you can have with a chicken farmer and he'll tell you. Yeah. And a lot of times that is going to be the most simple knowledge. Totally. You know, totally. Throw in the oven, 450. Yeah. 30 totally. minutes. Done. Yeah. 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 And I've, I've had, I've had farmers. <laughs> Don't do that at home. <laughs> I've had farmers tell me like, 30 minutes. like this is an old hen, brine it for, you know, a couple of days. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I've had farmers say that to me because they're not fooling. They're mm-hmm. not like, you know, I mean, a good farmer isn't anyway, you yeah. know, like, He'll say like this was one of my older hens, or or this was a this cow, or this was this, and you know those relationships aren't exclusive to chefs. Right. They're just not. Right. You know. I mean, you can have it too, mm-hmm. and you should, and yeah. that's what would actually help stabilize a lot of the problems we're having. Mm-hmm. Is if you entered that space and owned it as a as a part of your life like mm-hmm. then our farmers get to make more then we get to sustain more jobs then we get to you know and it becomes uh you know i, I think for me one of the biggest priorities and you know of course i love going to france and talking about food and and being in france and having that experience there's some self-servingness to it but a really big agenda and the bottom line for me is getting people to stop thinking that this is some sort of elite idea of food. It's mm. not. Like mm-hmm. you like I know there's a cost. I get that. I have been very broke and uh, without for several years of raising children. I understand that not everyone can afford to make these decisions. But you can pick one thing probably. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. can pick one thing. You you know, I always had a very hard line agreement with myself because I was a vegetarian for a long time and I started eating meat you know I was working at all these great restaurants where I was meeting all these great farmers and it made sense to me to to take down that rule because Mm -hmm. I was no longer supporting industrialized farming and that was my huge issue with it Um, I had a hard and fast rule uh, which I mostly still have you know I play a little fast and loose with it now if I'm being honest but um, where if I was going to buy meat I would buy meat and I could only afford to do it once a month, Mm. sometimes once every other month. And Mm. then, you know, we ate a lot of beans and rice and cornbread and and I and I can buy all of that at Kroger, Mm -hmm. you know, and we need a lot of eggs. I'll buy that at Kroger. And then eventually I earned a little bit more money and I could buy my eggs at the farmer's market, Mm -hmm. um, you know, almost exclusively. And Mm -hmm. so I like there's no there's no, you know. I'm not being flip about the cost. I understand it's not necessarily like the most sustainable way to be. But if we're being really honest, like most, you know, this town has got some money Mm -hmm. and everybody who has money after a certain point or after a certain demographic in this town should mostly be buying their food from these markets and Mm -hmm. from these farmers. And so it's just not a habit culturally that we're in. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big part of it for me going to France and taking these people who obviously have means Mm -hmm. and having these conversations of accessibility and familiarity and not being intimidated by food, which is bonkers to me that we're in a place where people are intimidated by food. Totally. Especially with all the knowledge out there and the kind of 
things are a little bit more accessible. Yeah. Knowledge is a little bit more accessible, yeah. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Now, you are a sculptor of words <laughs> and <laughs> of uh, your husband is a sculptor, mm. super talented, has an exhibit going on right now. It actually just had its closing ceremony this past weekend, but um, it was a really remarkable show. He brought in um, over a dozen of the nation, some of the nation's best ceramicists, and it was a really great show at Elephant Gallery. And And the whole purpose of the show was to open house his new um art yes community art initiative that's what i want to talk about yeah it's exciting and thank you for giving me some space to talk about it because it's it's hard to start something like this um uh so it's called buchanan art center it's um on buchanan street in north nashville and um he is working really hard you know he's having some starts and stops obviously and we're in a major he's in a major fundraising um push right now um the objective of the art center is to offer affordable community art education to middle schools and high schoolers Mm. uh and in nashville proper um you know i've I've been raising kids both of my kids started and finished school in nashville tennessee and over the past 20 years we've seen arts uh programming just get cut over and over again and we've been fortunate benefactors of being in some of the magnet schools well that's not true in the non-magnet schools which is Mm -hmm. a whole other issue of um, the ways in which we politicize education but that's not what we're talking about what we're talking about is a lot of the local neighborhood schools most especially in north nashville the most arts education that they have is basically one art teacher that comes one day a month sometimes Mm. uh sometimes one day a week on Mm -hmm. with an art trolley and these kids get maybe 45 minutes of arts education um and in a really unfortunate way and as as a city you know it's it's uh it's infuriating to me that we are a city that supposedly is of creative people and um you know a home of musicians and a home of artists and you know once upon a time you know promoted itself as a community of of artists you know right. whatever whatever yeah. whatever that category you fill um and we are underserving our kids unless they are going to wealthy private schools or fortunate enough to get lotteried into a magnet school and even oftentimes those you know are programs that are struggling um we just aren't providing our kids with arts education in Mm -hmm. this city so um watkins recently closed and they were one of the forerunners for many years trying to give kids community arts programming they've recently been bought by belmont um so it's becoming further less accessible you know Mm -hmm. and 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 sort of um put into different communities that aren't you know kids that um go to school in north nashville or um so so he's trying to establish a program where he can um, start to, you know, get these kids uh, brought in. The, you know, eventually the programming looks like we'll have some vans or buses where maybe we can provide transportation. But ultimately... Um, there is being an art, an arts curriculum is being written. Um, he's got a, a really incredible strong board of mm-hmm. local artists and art educators, and um, they are building and developing as we speak. Um, hopefully, a program that Nashville will support that um, kids of from all neighborhoods uh, can come in um, after school and have 
a full afternoon and evening of arts education. And with any luck, they will be, you know, able to matriculate into universities from this programming. So it's they're building something that I think could be of incredible value. Um, it's a non-for-profit. They got their non-for-profit status established this past summer. We hope that uh, most of these kids can come at a very reduced um, rate mm-hmm. um, based on their family's income, which... Um, you know, can be as little as $5 a month, but everyone will buy in just to value their experience mm-hmm. on some level. But the objective is to give this to kids that can't necessarily pay out of pocket and certainly aren't getting it in the public school system. So That's I'm great. really proud of him. He's working really hard. He's, you know, he's learning. I mean, he's not a non-for-profit director. You know, he's a ceramicist and he's been teaching in academics for the last 25 years. And there's a lot to learn. There are a lot of, you know, it's a different world, you know, and yeah. he's very passionate about his work. And so learning how to sort of manage what he sees and what he knows this could be with Getting people to buy in is yeah. is an art form, you know. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. It's interesting to watch him do this work, and um, I'm really proud of him. He's 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 doing great. He's doing really great. That's it's, great. It's going to take some time. You can check out John Donovan's work at tenureceramics.com. Tenure Ceramics. Also follow him on Instagram ten, at Tenure Ceramics. That is T E N U R E Ceramics. Yeah. Yeah. And you can find that at BuchananArts.org. Thank you. Head over there. And uh, really, really simple to just go to the website and you see that Donate Now button. And you can uh, help with the cause there. You can look at the courses. You can volunteer. And you can check out all these different workshops going on. John Donovan will be doing some wheel throwing basics. That sounds like a good one yeah, to check I out. I think so. So yes. check that out for sure. BuchananArts.org. Um, and now you're also, before we go here, you were helping out the Giving Kitchen, which is coming into yes. Nashville, which mm-hmm. is a really important thing for this um, varied food scene that we have here mm-hmm. in town. We have uh, people from all over the world here. We have a really vibrant international yep. cuisine mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. The Giving Kitchen. Tell me a little bit about why they're so important, why it's so cool they're coming to Nashville. Yeah, happily. Um, so they, they started in Atlanta, Georgia, um, nearly a decade ago, I believe, at this point, when a member of our hospitality um, family in the South was diagnosed with cancer and rapidly declined, and they built this um, program, Ryan Heidinger and his wife, Jen, um, and his sister, Krista, and his brother-in-law, Ryan, um, they started uh, basically doing a tour around the South to raise money for his medical expenses. And he was not uh, able to work. And as you know, anyone in the hospitality world, uh, you know, if they have to take time off for illness or whatever the case may be, often there's no safety net if um, entirely never a safety net. And um, even if you take a day off, you know, you're you struggle. I can remember, um, you know, there were times where I really needed to take some time to be with my sick kids. And it was a it was a, a conversation between which bill do we pay? And or, or do I have to go, you know, whatever, like, there, there aren't a lot of options for people in, in the hospitality world to take care of themselves. And so it became really obvious with Ryan's illness and eventual death that something needed to happen. And they started the Giving Kitchen. 
um, which is a non-for-profit that was initially a restaurant, and they would raise funds for um, anybody in the hospitality industry, world, community, to have a place to say, I just got hit by a car on my bike, I have a broken leg, I have can't work for two weeks. They will pay your salary, and they will help with medical bills. They will help you in whatever way they can. And it wow. started slowly, and it built up into now a multi-city um, organization. And Nashville mm. is their second city. And it's really important, I think, for Nashvilleians of all, uh, you know, <laughs> of all demographics to understand that this is available to us. And um, Brian Schroeder, who's one of the directors of the program, they're in town this weekend. Um, they had quite a big launch this weekend. And and Brian Schroeder and I went to lunch. We went to Frida's, which is my favorite restaurant in Nashville, which is a Oaxacan restaurant on Nolensville Road. Shout out Frida's. Yeah, it's yeah. really great. Um, and I was really, you know, he and I had a really great conversation about my priority, I think, in helping them kind of infiltrate this town. It's easy to, um, I think, it's easy for us to communicate with the the restaurants and the no, right? Uh-huh. You know, they're, these restaurants are always communicating with each other. They're on, uh, you know, Slack channels together talking about, you know, I need a dishwasher. This, so they're all communicating resources to one another. And mm. then there's a whole other aspect of restaurant culture that is separate from that. And that mm-hmm. is the that's the part of restaurant culture that is is something I really am concerning myself with at this point. Um, we have an incredible immigrant community in Nashville. We have a huge Kurdish population. We've got a remarkable international community of restaurateurs and cooks and chefs and oftentimes they get left out of these conversations of what our resources are mm-hmm. as cooks and, and dishwashers and people who work in restaurants and hospitality and so they're really pushing to sort of um, spread the word amongst like Conexion Americas and Turk and workers dignity and trying to kind of get the word out to people who necessarily aren't just uh, for lack of better terms, like, you know, the upper class white bro chefs, you know, that mm-hmm. all own restaurants and they're doing their best to communicate this to their workers. But so often these other restaurants get left out of these conversations. So they're really trying to sort of spread the word um, to make sure that everyone understands that these resources are, are available to anyone who works in the restaurant industry. So um, check them out, The Giving Kitchen. They um, just launched in Nashville. And if you are a Nashville kitchen restaurant hospitality worker, um, is an incredibly valuable resource. And they are here for us. They're here for you. And they're doing incredibly important work um, to support, you know, people who make a living in, yeah. in, in this world. So um, it is, uh, you know, not just uh, I think it's important for you to know it's an available resource for you, but also to make sure you are sharing with anybody that you work with, um, sharing with your bosses, sharing with your employees, sharing with your family, because if, you know, if, you, if, you don't, if we don't use it, we'll lose it. And mm-hmm. um, we, let's let's make sure that this is uh, something that can get a foothold in our, in our town. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, you can check that out, givingkitchen.org. We've known people definitely who like broke their ankle or... Mm-hmm. I got hit by a car yeah on my bicycle and then you're you're, you're broke screwed. three ribs and went to work yeah. like yeah it was horrible exactly 
I mean, whenever you're you're like trying to <laughs> make the choice between can I pay my but what you're trying to do in this country is avoid two things: getting behind on your rent and not getting buried in medical bills. Yeah. And so not only can you not take time off because you can't afford it with your normal expenses, you also can't take time off because you're anticipating all of these new expenses that this injury or illness will give you and you just feel doubly fucked. So like they are here to help manage and mitigate those fears and expectations and um, and true real-time you know, worries. So definitely seek them out and let other people know that they're here to support us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It was great. It was amazing. (laughs) Enlightening as always. And people can follow you on Instagram at Lisa Marie Donovan. Sure. To find out all the new events that might come up as the world starts to open up a little bit more. Or interviews. Um, interviews. Yeah. You did Podcasts. one last night. Glad you're getting around to, to doing Me the too. book tour. It like, feels nice. It's, it's a year, over a year later. <laughs> yeah. and, um, paperback is out. Audio, the audio book, which yeah. is how, uh, how, how, how I, oh, how I uh, read, read your book. That's okay. Yeah, a lot, absolutely of, a lot of people have been into the audio yeah. book, I noticed. I think so, too. I, think, yeah. I mean, in my experience, there were... There were parts of the book where I, I, I wanted someone to be there with me and uh-huh. honestly to have you walking me through certain parts of the book. It was wow. it was it was it was immeasurable how like how how the emotion was different than just reading it reading it on on on, on print. Oh, that's mm-hmm. good to hear because you never know if you're gonna if you're gonna do it right. But you know, and no, I was brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. That feels good. Everyone seems to like the audiobook, so that makes me really happy. The book is Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, Lisa Donovan, essayist, memoirist, and future fiction novelist. Oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> I mean, you I know. Can't wait for that. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. Maybe when I'm in my 70s, I'll be one of these you, old crones. That's, that's just, the good thing about writing. I agree. You know, <laughs> you, just, you got time to do it. Thank you so much. Thanks, you can find guys. us on Instagram at liquidgold underscore pod. Email us liquidgoldpod at gmail.com. And uh, we encourage you to check out everything that's going on at We Own This Town, weownthistown.net. Shout out to our producer, Michael Eads. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to Upright T-Rex Music for the tunes. Jess Matchin for the logo. All right. For my co-host, Mr. <laughs> Kenneth Dedman, my name is Mike Wolf, and we'll see you next time on Liquid Gold.